Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment, that show that takes you down the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm John, and this is the third week of our March Mead Madness. Today, I'm joined with Jotham Kinder, an employee of the Homebrew Emporium, a store catered to those who like or would like to start a hobby in homebrewing. He has dabbled in beer and wine, and today, the topic of mead. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So we recently did an episode on the history of bead. Do you have any historical facts we may have missed? Oh boy, uh, so many uh, things. I guess the one thing I would say to people, I don't know if you covered this in your episode, is mead is so ancient that you really need to break out of this Vikings drinking it out of a horn mindset. It, all you really need is honey and water. That's it. Yep. And we know that there are mead-making cultures in the same geographical areas. I'm thinking particularly of the Rift Valley in Ethiopia, where they are still having very active mead-making cultures. Now, there it's called uh, Tej, and they bitter it with uh, a locally growing buckthorn called Gesho, which unfortunately you just can't get in the U.S. really. So I haven't had a chance to make this, but I mean, just think about that. Places where we know humanity originated from, there are fragments of bone, tens of thousands of years old. And there are people wandering around today going, oh yeah, I make meat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's wild. I know. The earliest Norwegian recipes we have are Scandinavian, date from maybe 1500. I know Viking's blood uses a recipe from around 1700. That's yesterday, historically. Yeah. yeah, and I know the the earliest evidence they have is from China, too. Another incredibly ancient culture that made this stuff. There's just astonishingly ancient winemaking evidence in uh, Georgia, not the state Georgia, but the country Georgia. Just uh, absurdly ancient stuff. Uh, Hammurabi's code covers beer making you know, uh, with very strict penalties for not following the standards. The Germans didn't invent that one. <laughs> and uh, in fact, would have been considered rather lax in their enforcement. I think Hammurabi prescribed execution for some of the uh, offenses, but <laughs> not a complicated soul in many ways. Uh, very particular on his beer. Very. And is mead your favorite microbe inspired drink just to make? Oh, how, how can you make me choose between my babies? <laughs> uh, honestly, it probably is my favorite one to make. My favorite drink, though, beer is such a broad category. I go from, you know, this beer is undrinkable. What have you put in front of me, you monster? To, so this is mine now, and we're running off together, and we're going to be very happy. <laughs> you know, I, I thought for ages I hated IPAs. Mm -hmm. And then I just found out I hated really bitter West Coast IPAs, and I really enjoyed New England IPAs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Same thing with uh, mead making. First time I had mead. It was just this honey water, and it was it wasn't awful. It didn't turn me off the whole category, but I was kind of going, I don't get it. Well, pretty soon I got it. <laughs> there was all these different things you could try, different ways to add things, change things. Um, making country wines, I made a strawberry wine this summer, and the just the joy of taking fruit from a marketplace, you know, a farmer's market, super fresh, you know, picked you know that day or the day before. And turning it into this wonderful coppery rose wine a couple of months later, it's a really wonderful feeling. It gives a lot of satisfaction, a lot of pride of ownership. Mm. And um, 
I, I think that's pretty special. And I don't think you get that from a lot of other hobbies. Yeah. I'm finally trying my first mead and I have to say, I'm, I'm happy with my first take on it. <laughs> you know, it's one of those, I made this. kind of things. Exactly. <laughs> I created this. Yes. All these little microbes thrive and labor for me alone. (laughs) (laughs) So can you tell us a little bit more about your micro moment? Uh, How did you get into mead making and why do you enjoy it? I got into mead making because I got recruited to this job purely because the former manager thought I had a good personality. That's literally it. My, my, My brewing experiences before that were non-existent or you know, very minor. And so he stepped me through everything. He stepped me into, here's how you make a beer. Okay, now I've made a beer. What about all this other stuff in the shop? Oh, that's all the winemaking stuff. Should I make some of it? I only really make beer. (laughs) Can I make some of it? Oh, you should. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What's easy? Eh, Mead, cider. I like mead. That's fine. I'll, I'll try mead. It's not cider season. Um, so literally just with this incredibly half-hearted guidance compared to the laser-like down to the second guidance on the beer, (laughs) I made my first mead, you know, it took a lot more patience than the beer did just watching it evolve, watching it shift in all these different ways. Um, I guess that could be my concern, my micro moment, (laughs) you know, this kind of like, are you saying honey water and this little packet right here? produces alcoholic beverages <laughs> i do have to say i've enjoyed watching my mead like the first couple of days my fiance would just catch me looking at uh my mead and i'm counting the seconds in between each bubble <laughs> nope. that's a popular one i get it it's not a mead thing but here's something that i think any beer makers in the audience will get the first beer that i made solo was a uh was a Hefeweizen, a very classic German version of the beer. So it's really a couple of malts. And then 99% of the heavy lifting in a Hefeweizen is done by the yeast. It's the primary source of the flavor of the beer. It's a fairly unique style that way. And, you know, I ferment it in a bucket and rack it into secondary when it's done. And it's this amazing brick yellow color, like this just very rich sediment. Like if you saw it, if you saw a river that color, you know those floodplains are going to be some of the most fertile things you've ever seen in your life. It's that rich, life-filled yellow. And then I rack it into a glass carboy, and I'm just watching day by day that settlement settle down and the most beautiful, transparent amber color coming in behind it. I mean, that was a trip. That was, you know, every day I'd come into the shop and I'm like, how's it doing? How's it doing? Let me see. What? Oh, wow. <laughs> it's just what is a mead is a question that would drive an academic around the bend it's it's just an insanely broad field but um you know it's a great big wide wonderful world out there lots of things to try (laughs) yeah uh we actually have a friend that uh he tried kombucha for the first time and four months later he's like i made this kombucha and then it's like i made this kombucha and he really hit off doing that yeah, there's uh, these little floating, they're like the alien mothership in uh, Independence Day, these little thin pancakes of yeast kind of spreading their tendrils down and reproducing and making more little pancakes of yeast. It's 
not really something that makes sense coming from somebody who literally sells yeast all day, but it's kind of creepy looking to me. It is just, what is this jellyfish in a jar? Yeah, scobies are really weird. <laughs> yeah, they're just a profoundly unnatural thing. Well, no, they're profoundly natural, but they creep me out a little bit. <laughs> Understandable. Yeah. So could you briefly describe the process of mean making? This, again, is just a hugely overbroad thing. And if you wouldn't mind my talking directly to your audience here for a second. Sure. Don't panic. You're not doing it wrong. (laughs) Seriously, don't panic. You're not doing it wrong. You're talking about a beverage that predates written language. You're not doing it wrong. (laughs) The way I make mead is I follow the pretty standard ratio of three pounds of honey to a gallon of uh, water. I'm sorry for anybody listening in metric. I don't know it off the top of my head. Um, But, you know, three pounds of honey to a gallon of water. I take a sanitized fermentation vessel, by which I mean usually a plastic food grade bucket with a lid with a grommet on it that I can stick an airwalk into. And when I say sanitized, I mean star sand. Um, For those of you who may not know, star sand is a commercially available uh, food safe, that is safe to ingest uh, sanitizing liquid. You make the solution according to the factory instructions, you spray it on your stuff or you swirl it around your stuff or however you need to get it on your fermentation vessels or your tools, and then you leave it. And it's fine and your stuff isn't going to get infected. So sanitized bucket, in goes the honey, in goes the warm but not hot 100 degree, 110 degree water, the contact with the honey and the stirring it together is going to drop its temperature down to a point where there's not going to be any problem when I pitch the yeast. Shake the crap out of it, like cover cover the hole with my thumb and just shake the ever-living expletive out of it because this is your chance to add oxygen and yeast needs oxygen. Seize the moment. <laughs> <laughs> At which point, you know, once I've done all that, if I'm going to be putting stuff into the primary fermentation, that's about the point where I'd usually do it. I've made one of my favorite things to make, and I guess we'll get more into this later, was a hibiscus lime mead. Most people add the hibiscus in secondary if they're using whole hibiscus flowers, or they'll add the tea in primary. I had to be the weirdo, and I put the whole flower in in primary. It worked out great. If you're putting in nutrients, which you probably should if you're making uh, a a pretty straight up classic mead, you're going to want nutrients in there because mead is a very simple sugar. It lacks a lot of the nutrients, essential chemicals that yeast need to really reproduce and thrive. So the ones I use in the shop are usually Fermate O and Fermate K. Get that stuff in there, get it mixed in, and then pitch the yeast. And, uh, you know, we can get into what each <laughs> yeast I pitch a bit later, but it's a whole field. Anyway, once all that's done, that's basically all your heavy lifting done, pretty literally. Slap an airlock on that sucker and uh, put it somewhere not too hot, not too cold. And that's it. That's basically it. You just let it go. And then it's just time, right? Yeah, it's just time. Let your little yeasty boys go to work. Rack into secondary, which I've once heard referred to, uh, once heard somebody say that it should be properly thought of as primary aging rather than a secondary fermentation, because generally you're not fermenting it a second time. I'll let it sit in secondary for 
months, potentially. Usually I move to bottling uh, when I need another fermenter. (laughs) (laughs) I am blowing past sanitation at speed here, other than my little digression on star sand. But the number one way any kind of brew, any kind of brew, doesn't matter what you're making, number one way to wreck that is improper sanitization. And one of the places that most often sees a breakdown sanitation is when you're active secondary. It's, it's kind of the most obvious pothole to break your leg in. Remember that wonderful Hefeweizen I was describing earlier? Want to know how it tasted? Mm-hmm. I'd love to know too, because it got infected and it went bad on me. Oh, it was no. heartbreaking. Uh, it was devastating watching these little spidery webs go across the top of this thing. Um, you know, and you know, realizing I had to pour it down the toilet. It was just like, oh God, oh no. <laughs> but you know, it, it got infected. And by the time we found it, there was really no saving that poor thing. Oh no. And it was just because when I transferred it to the carboy, I must have missed something in the sanitization and it got infected. So sanitize, sanitize, sanitize when you rack to secondary. Sanitize, sanitize, sanitize when you rack your bottles. And, uh, you know, just accept that it's going to take longer to bottle it than you feel like it should. It just takes a minute. Mm -hmm. So that's really all there is to that. I know clove honey is the most popular or readily available honey, but honey has different tastes and textures when it comes to different sources. I found that out when I got a... Uh, orange blossom honey. What's your favorite honey flavor? There's one particular honey that is very controversial in the Mazer community. I kind of, purely because it was controversial, I just threw myself at it. (laughs) Buckwheat honey. Buckwheat honey is a trip, but it's this incredibly dark brown. It's not black, but it's really leaning towards dark brown, hard dark brown. Not at all transparent, and uh, boy, you would be mad as hell if somebody told you to put this on toast or on your pancakes, because I personally do not think it tastes good as just a raw honey. But, you know, people will make mead out of anything, so naturally people have in the past made buckwheat honey mead. And I was reading about it online, and it was, some people were saying it is the worst thing in the world, it smells like death, even years later, it's just absolutely awful, it's like trying to drink barnyard sweepings don't do it and other people are going what in the hell are you talking about it's the best thing yeah it takes some aging but it's got all these nuanced character notes this incredibly rich deep aromas i made it into i made a batch of buckwheat orange mead and even at the end of secondary the aroma was quite pleasant i got a little bit of that barnyard that people were talking about but nothing too awful it was clearly very young it's clearly a type of honey that does benefit from a long aging, possibly years. This is going to be one I'm just going to stick in the back of the shelves and kind of be happily surprised a couple of years from now. Like, oh, right, I made that. <laughs> um, cool. Let's see how it tastes. But, you know, just just having that there, having that weird, different, funky thing, it's very appealing to me. What's the, the flavor of it? Like, how would you describe it? Oh, boy, I don't know how to make something sound more off-putting than to say the honey tastes metallic, but that is, to me, kind of the first impression that I get is this almost metallic reaction to it. Gets into deeper, almost astringent notes. 
it really does not taste the way honey, we, we sort of instinctively want honey to taste. It tastes almost like, like well, astringent. Uh, somehow, if somebody managed to kind of crush up an ibuprofen in honey. <laughs> You're really selling it. <laughs> yeah, it, it honestly tastes bad. I mean, others may disagree, but I genuinely was like pretty unhappy when I just ate a spoonful of it to see what I was working with. You know, I didn't feel like I was tricked, but I did feel kind of mad at myself. Not as mad as I would have been if I had actually eaten a piece of hop, but you know, by the way, listening audience, don't be fooled. Don't eat hops. Just, just don't. Bad time will be had by everybody who ate the hop. The people watching you eat it are in for a real treat. <laughs> uh, it is insanely bitter. Uh, just, just don't do it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but back to the uh, buckwheat. Honestly, tastes. I thought it tastes genuinely bad. And the only reason I went through with this is it does have these dark, almost multi caramel notes to the aroma. It's got a breadiness to it that you, I personally don't find in almost any other honey, which again, there are so many thousands of honeys. I, my, my experience is by no means comprehensive, but of the honeys I had tried, the closest I could relate to that is uh, honey made from pine sap. Uh, which is made in some regions, certainly in Sicily, you can find that in some other places and it's wild and it's actually quite tasty, but that, that's sort of the closest approximation I can come that kind of dark woody, almost astringent uh, taste of that pine honey compared to the dark bready, very astringent flavor of the buckwheat. Mm. Uh, so like I said, it, it's not a honey you want to eat, but as a, Something to add to your toolbox is another color to paint with. That's pretty interesting. I do have to admit, like I've had, you know, buckwheat before and I've definitely tasted metallic in there. I can understand what you're talking about there. I was genuinely surprised. So let's dive into yeast next. Sure. I know there's many different types of yeast. I think there's, I saw at least 20 to 30,000 different strains of yeast in the world. Plus, but there's many different types you can use to make mead. What is the one you suggest newbies use and why? Welvin D47. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the reason for this is actually, it's a bit like pencils. Any child can pick up a pencil and doodle something, and it is going to be technically a picture. They will have made a complete piece of art with a pencil. You give the same pencil to a professional artist, and they will make you a work of art that is worth tens of thousands of dollars. They're still using the same pencil. They're still using the same paper, but the skill level is different and producing a very different result. This is the way to think about D47. If you put D47 in your honey water mixture, even if you've screwed up the nutrients, even if your temperature isn't ideal, um, your aeration wasn't great, you're still going to have a drinkable meat at the end of the day. It's not going to be great. It's probably going to be really sweet but it's just a very reliable white wine yeast. And it works in a fairly broad temperature range and it can put up with a fair amount of abuse. And as you get more experienced making mead, you're going to draw out its better characteristics. You're going to get that ABV up higher. You're going to be able to make a drier mead with it. But you know you can consistently with minimal effort get in a 10 and a half ABV mead with D47. Absolutely bare bones. For that reason, I heavily suggest it to anybody making a country wine, a mead, uh, 
or anything similar. Stepping off from that a little bit, and this was one of those, going back to when I was kind of reassuring people, however you're making your mead, you're probably not screwing it up and it's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. You can throw just about anything into honey water and have it ferment. You know, our ancestors were stirring special sticks that they got good results with in there. You're going to be fine. Broadly speaking, I'd say there are three categories of yeast that I would recommend to people for mead making. And it's beer yeast, wine yeast, predominantly white wine yeast, and then really strong white wine yeast, which is the champagne yeasts. Um, And just a quick why on the champagne, why a second type of white wine yeast when I've already said use Lalvin D47, which is a a white wine yeast. Mm -hmm. The alcoholic level of your final mead is going to be determined by a couple of things, predominantly, well, three, three main things. One, the nutrition available to your yeast. So its ability to reproduce, it's the oxygen, all these things, is it getting enough nitrogen, all that other good stuff. So that's number one. Number two, what's the available sugar for it? How much fermentable sugar is in your beverage? If you only have a teaspoon of sugar in there and a gallon of water, your yeast is basically just going to shrug its shoulders and say, you know, I can't, I can't work with this. I got nothing. What do you want from me? No sugar here for me to eat, convert into carbon dioxide and alcohol, (laughs) you know? Yeah. So the quantity of sugar is going to be key. And obviously, if you go too far the other way, if you try to put four pounds of honey into a a gallon of water, it's going to be like trying to say, oh, you're hungry. Let me stuff your throat with donuts. A good time will not be had by all. Yeah, it gets to the point where uh, so much sugar ends up being antimicrobial because there's so much of it. Exactly. Well, that's why honey doesn't spoil. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that. And the last thing, and this actually comes up less often than you might think because of the first two items, people don't really uh, feed it or provide it enough sugar, is the alcohol tolerance of your yeast. Your yeast will die off when the alcohol content of your fermented beverage hits a certain level. With uh, EC1118, that's usually in the 14 to 16% range. Well, my microbe friends, I think this is going to be a two-parter. Jotham is just too interesting for one episode. Check in next week with the second part of our interview. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I hope this podcast brings you some knowledge and an interest in brewing your own beverage. If you did enjoy today's show, please consider following us or subscribing on your favorite podcast app. You can also visit our website at microbegals.com. That's M-I-C-R-O-B. I-G-A-L-S dot com. Do you make your own mead? We'd love to hear about it. You can share by emailing us at microbegales at gmail.com or send us a message on Twitter, Reddit, or Facebook at microbegales. We hope you enjoy listening, and we hope you keep your microbes happy and healthy. Bye!